welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to our weekly mini-sode, True Crime South Africa Spotlight. In these mini-sodes, we cover true crime cases which are in the news at the moment. In episode 5, we covered the disappearance of 8-year-old Amakhli Tibete, who is still missing after leaving with a man who claimed to need directions on the 6th of April in Deduza, Gauteng. I've been in contact with the One Strong Voice Foundation, which advocates for victims' rights in cases that have little to no media coverage. Brian Satoli, from the One Strong Voice Foundation, sent me the following statement regarding Amahle's case. This is Brian V. Joyce Satoli from One Strong Voice Foundation. It's been over 100 days since Amatle Tabete, the eight-year-old, was last seen playing few houses from her home. It's alleged that she was called by an unknown man on the 6th of April 2019, according to the eyewitnesses. Out of millions of South Africans, till today, nobody knows nothing or has ever seen the little Amasha. It is really surprising. What happened to the Zulu proverb, which says, Umuntu ngumuntu ngabantu. Fellow South Africans, if there's anyone who has information about the little girl, do contact or visit your nearest police station It takes a village to raise a child. So is when the child is missing or kidnapped. The village is negatively affected. Do not keep quiet while you can make a difference in helping to find the child. As One Strong Voice Foundation, we call upon South Africans especially the South African police services, to treat this case with agency and seriousness. They should keep digging until the girl is found. This message is not only addressed for Amatel Tabete's case, but rather to all the cases, especially to the ones that are growing cold. The question would be, Are the South African police services well equipped to solve such types of crime? It is questionable. To all the public servants, they should keep in mind that the blue uniform they wear has a national flag, which simply means they are not representing themselves, but rather they are representing the nation. If anyone has got any information to help find Amatle and all other kids that are missing, please do not hesitate to visit your nearest police station. Thank you. I highly recommend liking and sharing the One Strong Voice Foundation's Facebook page, and I will post the link in the show notes. Possibly the biggest crime story in the news at the moment is the murder of Megan Kramer. Megan was a 30-year-old horse-riding enthusiast 
who lived on an equestrian farm just outside Philippi in the Western Cape. Megan worked at her brother's bakery in Woodstock. Her brother posted on social media at two o'clock on the afternoon of the 4th of August that Megan had been last seen leaving her residence the night before in her white Toyota Aris around 24 minutes past six. A close friend of Megan's who's lived on the same property reported having spoken to Megan on the evening of the 3rd. Megan had said that she was in for the night and snuggled up with her new dog. It was after this that another person on the farm had seen Megan leaving in her vehicle. The witness said that Megan seemed fine and had not been behaving strangely at all. When Megan's friend returned to the farm later, she noticed that Megan's dog was running around outside and her vehicle was gone. She had tried to phone Megan and had been unable to reach her. It is not known what action was taken at this time, if any. Honestly, Megan was a grown woman and could come and go as she pleased, so I would not expect anyone to assume that something bad had happened at this time. Investigations have since shown that her vehicle was at a filling station in Strandfontein, 10 kilometers from Philippi, approximately an hour later. It is unknown whether Megan was in the vehicle at the time, nor who the occupants were. At half past 11 that evening, the vehicle passed through a roadblock in Weinberg. At a roadblock, officers will check whether you were intoxicated. They will check that you have a valid driver's license, and they will check that your vehicle appears roadworthy and is licensed. They do not check whether the vehicle that you are driving is registered to you. When running the number plates, if the vehicle comes up as stolen, they will of course act, but the vehicle had not at that time been reported stolen. In a completely shocking twist, a colleague of Megan's came forward recently to state that he had been at the roadblock that night. The colleague lives nearby to where the roadblock was being undertaken and had been walking to a garage to buy a cool drink when he recognised Megan's vehicle stopped at the roadblock. He approached a vehicle expecting to see his colleague, but instead he found two female passengers unknown to him and the male driver was standing speaking to the police officer outside of the vehicle. The colleague asked the two female passengers where Megan was and they seemed to have no idea what he was talking about. He then approached the police officer and told him that the vehicle belonged to his colleague, and that the people that were driving it were not known to him, or to his knowledge, Megan. The man claims that the policeman initially laughed at him, and told him that he had no proof that the owner had not given these people permission to use the vehicle. Megan's colleague was insistent, and even asked the officer to check the boot of the vehicle. The officer eventually relented, and said that he would hold the vehicle until they could reach Megan by phone. The colleague could not reach her, and it is alleged that the policeman eventually allowed the occupants to leave the roadblock, as he had no reason to hold them. I am sure that this will be investigated to its full extent, but I can only hope, for the sake of the officer involved, as well as the already distraught colleague, that it is not proven that Megan was in the boot of that car. By Sunday the 4th of August, South Africa was aware that Megan was missing, and the details of her vehicle were distributed. 
and eagle-eyed residents of Grassy Park, spotted the vehicle at three o'clock that afternoon and gave chase, but lost the vehicle. To the best of my knowledge, three suspects were arrested as being in possession of Megan's vehicle at eight o'clock that evening. I say to the best of my knowledge because media reports are conflicting, with some stating that they were arrested on the evening of the 3rd of August, which we know definitely cannot be true, as the vehicle was still being reported as missing on social media by Megan's own brother on Sunday afternoon. The three suspects arrested were Jeremy Sias, 27, Charles Daniels, 39, and Shiraz Jafta, 34. It would later emerge that Jeremy Sias was known to Megan, as he had worked on the farm she had lived on as a tractor driver. In a very sad and unnecessary turn of events, people had started looking at the Facebook profiles of the people involved in the crime after their names were released. Some people noticed that Jeremy Sias had been Facebook friends with the son of Megan's friend and fellow resident of the farm. This somehow insanely evolved into death threats against her friend's son and claims that he was somehow involved in Megan's disappearance. I don't ordinarily understand 90% of human interaction, but this really blows my mind. Yes, Jeremy worked on the farm, and there is a definite connection there. But I'm Facebook friends with many people I used to work with, and if one of them were to commit a crime against someone I know, I don't see how the connection could be drawn that I was involved. These people were, at this time, desperately searching for their missing friend, terrified of what could have happened to her, and then horrified that someone that they knew had been found with her missing vehicle. And then some people decided to start accusing them of being involved. Great job, people. Way to kick someone when they're down. I looked at the suspect's Facebook profiles too, because I knew that Megan's story would be one I would probably cover here. I didn't for one minute draw any wild conclusions from the information I found there, because firstly, that's not my place, and secondly, how does that help Megan? The search continued for Megan while police questioned the suspects. It's emerged that they were gang ties, and that some of the suspects were known drug dealers. A private investigator became involved and made a statement that gave everyone hope, whether intentionally or not. The private investigator said in a media statement that he could not release any information as it may place Megan's life in danger. This may have simply been his way of brushing off the media, and perhaps we were all just desperately hoping that this story would still have a happy ending. But on Thursday the 8th of August, the hopes of all those who had been following Megan's story were dashed. At one o'clock in the morning, one of the suspects was said to have led police to the body of Megan Kramer. She was found with her hands tied behind her back and a ligature around her neck. She had several facial injuries and bruising and was fully clothed. Her body was found in a sand mine in Philippi, just one kilometre from her home, and Jeremy Sias was charged with her murder. 
The suspects had, in the time before they were arrested, drawn money from Megan's account on several occasions. It is alleged that one withdrawal happened after they were arrested, which means that there may be another suspect involved. An unnamed source has claimed in the weekend Argus that Sias told police that he had killed Megan inside her cottage before stealing her car. I feel like this is his way of trying to claim that his friends were not involved, and I don't really see how it can be true, as Megan was seen driving away in her vehicle. There were also reportedly quite a few people on the farm at the time he claims to have killed her, which raises further doubts about his story. All three suspects were found to have had previous convictions or outstanding charges against them, with Jafter even having a murder charge on his record. None of the three suspects were given bail, and further proceedings against them will continue in October. An altercation on a golf course on the 7th of July in Mbombela has led to the death of the assault victim. Xander Kotza, who was assaulted at Mbombela Golf Course, died at 4 o'clock in the morning on the 17th of August at a medical facility in Johannesburg. Kotza had been in a critical but stable condition since the incident and was transferred to a medical rehabilitation facility where he passed away. The reason for his death is unknown, but the charge against the assailant, which was originally attempted murder, has been upgraded to murder. The assailant charged with Kotz's murder opened a case of assault against Kotz's wife as well. It is unknown whether Xander regained consciousness at any time, but he was reported to have been in a coma on July the 12th. A reward of 25,000 rand is being offered for any witnesses to the incident. In a surprising move this week, Zephanie Nurse revealed her true identity and announced that she has co-authored a book about her life. Zephanie, whose real name we now know is Michelle Solomon, was kidnapped from a hospital just hours after her birth on the 28th of April, 1997. Eighteen years later, she was reunited with her birth parents after her sister's classmates had started commenting that the two girls looked very similar. DNA tests proved that they were related. The court had sealed the girl's true identity at the time. Her kidnapper, Lavona Solomon, was sentenced to 10 years in jail for kidnapping, although she still maintains that she did not take the child and that she was given the baby to raise by another unnamed woman who told her that the child had been abandoned. The book which has been written about the case is called Zephanie, Two Mothers, One Daughter. It appears that in the four years since she was reunited with her biological family, Michelle has struggled to form a bond with them. She still sees Lavona as her mother, and although she realizes that the woman's story about how she came to live with them cannot be true, she does not hold any ill feeling towards the people she was raised by. Michelle insists that she had a good childhood and was not abused or mistreated in any way. She claims that her biological mother, on the other hand, has been difficult to deal with and has let her down on many occasions. This is obviously an extremely difficult situation for all involved, 
and although I don't know the details of the biological mother's behaviour, I think she deserves some level of understanding. Her child was missing for 18 years, and that must have been completely traumatising to her. I'm sure that on many occasions she had fantasised about a happy reunion, and I'm also sure that the actual reunion probably did not live up to that fantasy. Mache would have been terribly torn at the time, having lived her entire life thinking she was someone else's child, and now suddenly had to accept the fact that she had a whole family she knew nothing about. I think emotions like that take many years to process, and her biological mother may have felt rejected when Mache did not immediately embrace them as her family. The book will be interesting to read, and I will leave a link in the show notes where you can buy the book in e-format on Amazon. This is an affiliate link, and True Crime South Africa will earn a commission from Amazon on your purchase, which helps to support the show. I will definitely cover this case in a full episode at some stage. We covered the Krugersdorp killers in episode 4, and this week the last three defendants received their sentences. Zach Valentine was given eight life sentences to run concurrently with 66 years for the other counts against him, which included charges for attempting to defraud Discovery Life by faking his own death. Cecilia Stone, who was believed to be the mastermind of the group, was given 13 life sentences to run concurrently with 152 years for the other counts against her. The last of the group was the wild card. Marcel Stain was the youngest accused and was only 14 years old when she was involved in her first murder. Her brother LaRue took a plea deal and testified against his fellow accused. He was given 25 years in prison. Marcel, on the other hand, had initially protested her innocence and only changed her tune when she realised that no one was falling for her innocent little girl routine. The judge took this deception into account and said that he didn't really think that her remorse was heartfelt. He sentenced the now 21-year-old to seven life sentences to run concurrently with 144 years for the other charges. At least for the 11 victims' families, there is now some sense of closure and they can start to build new lives without their loved ones. Quite a bit of interesting info came out in the pre-sentencing hearings, and I'm going to watch all of the footage before I cover that for our next mini-sode. There's another update on a case I chatted about briefly in the last Spotlight mini-sode. Well, it's actually two separate missing person cases, but it's now believed they're linked. South Africans John Bortmer and Mushfiq Daniels were both teaching in Vietnam this year, when they disappeared without a trace, in May and July respectively. The two men did not know each other, but this week, the disaster relief group Gift of the Givers made a statement to the press saying that it was believed both may have fallen victim to an organ trafficking ring. Both men were linked to an American woman and received payments into their bank accounts before their disappearances. John Bortmer had apparently made statements to his aunt that he was thinking about selling a kidney. Vietnam recently bust one of the biggest organ smuggling rings in its history. I don't take this claim lightly, because Gift of the Givers is a highly reputable organisation, 
they would not make a statement like that without proof. We can only hope that John and Mushfiq are still alive. I need to do more research into organ trafficking, but perhaps the groups will keep the people from whom they've harvested organs until they've recovered and then release them. If this is the case, though, I'm still concerned, because the news coverage of these two particular cases could scare the syndicates and cause them to permanently silence the two men. For the family's sakes, I really hope that there's a resolution to this soon. That's going to be all the cases we cover for this mini-sode of TCSA Spotlight. But I wanted to chat briefly about an organization that contacted me during the week. Community Intervention Centre, or CRC, is a victim support NPO that was established in 2001. They provide free 24-hour on-site trauma intervention and support to the Bloberg community and beyond. I chatted with their general manager, Tanya, on the phone, and she indicated that while they're based in Tableview, Cape Town, they get many requests for support from across the country as they're one of the few organizations of their kind. CRC provides trauma counseling and psychological support to people who have been victims of crime, whether directly or indirectly, or anyone who is in crisis. I did not even know that a service like this existed, and I think it is absolutely amazing and so badly needed. I don't think that people realize how deeply trauma can affect your life and how it can impact you for decades after an event. You don't even need to have been a direct victim to suffer the effects of trauma. In some of the cases I've been researching, I've had the privilege of speaking with people who knew victims of crime, sometimes even remotely. And this has really made the far-reaching effects of trauma hit home for me. I've spoken to people who, almost three decades later, are still affected on a daily basis by what happened to a friend or a loved one. You don't need to struggle with it on your own. I'm going to leave the contact details for the 24-hour CIC helpline in the show notes, as well as in the show notes of every future episode. Even if you don't need their assistance yourself, I highly recommend that you make yourself familiar with CRC and support them if you can. Thank you so much for listening to this mini-sode. If you enjoy listening to our content, please don't forget to follow us on the podcatcher you use so that you are notified of our new episodes. You can also catch us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and join in on our discussions. You can visit our website at truecrimesouthafrica.com and view photographs related to the cases we discuss, as well as transcripts of each episode. Thank you for listening, and I'll chat to you soon.